Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Dominic Constant here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's the global head of rates research at Deutsche Bank. Securities. Let's start by just previewing what you expect to see tomorrow. We're going to get some new data on inflation here uh, in the U.S. So much of the conversation centering on uh, inflation expectations, where, where inflation stands. What What are you looking for tomorrow when those new data come out? Um, well, I mean, our, our, view, our view is pre- uh, our official view is pretty much consensus, yeah. uh, uh, sort of slightly better inflation data than we've seen. I guess in my heart of hearts, I'm sort of concerned uh, that we're going to see perhaps some broadening of the weakness. Uh, there's been uh, some focus on uh, the service sector inflation being uh, a weak uh, relative to the good side inflation. And that's in some sense more important because services are much less volatile uh, than goods. So if you get some sort of weakness there, you're going to be worried about a more persistent downdraft inflation going forward. Uh, and behind the uh, sort of month-to-month data, uh, uh, we have this sort of underlying concern that inflation is just generally going to be sort of uh, drifting lower or closer to 1% than the Fed's 2% target. Uh, and that's our kind of new inflation equilibrium concept that we've been focused on. Tom, how do you process the, the, the divide within the Federal Reserve on this issue in, in particular? You have the Fed chair saying uh, that this is transitory. These headwinds are transitory. We heard from Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed yesterday uh, saying he's not optimistic we're going to see uh, any market rise in, in inflation anytime uh, soon. How, how problematic is that divide among policymakers? Well, I think the central banks have a real problem because, uh, you know, in general, and it's not just the Fed, they've all struggled to meet inflation targets. Uh, and uh, uh, the importance of the inflation target for any central bank is that it obviously gives them, it anchors, you know, kind of what they do. Uh, and it's, um, because inflation is generally considered to be driven by the expectations of inflation, if you have a target that's supposed to be driving expectations and you don't meet that target, uh, then you have to, it begs the question, what does create inflation? Uh, And uh, that's the kind of idea whereby if inflation is being created by some other process, and it could be structural, it could be due with technology, it could be to do with demographics and all all these other sort of structural things that is really outside the remit of a central bank, uh, then uh, it it almost becomes a redundancy what their inflation target is. And uh, it maybe uh, challenges their whole kind of policy framework. And I think that's the, that's why the, the, the Fed has to, and any central bank has to still say things are transitory, inflation will go up, won't it? Uh, because otherwise, <laughs> you know, otherwise, what are they doing? Yeah. Well, here in, in August of 2017, what's the, the, the utility of the use of the, the Phillips curve at this point? How do you regard that tool? Well, we know empirically it's been a disaster. Yeah. So if you look at uh, five-year rolling regressions of, uh, the, uh, of wage inflation versus unemployment gaps or unemployment rates, uh, obviously empirically it's broken down, it's flattened. <clears throat> and it's shifted lower, which means that the average wage inflation rate uh, for some sort of in- unemployment equilibrium is much lower, and the sensitivity of wages to changes on unemployment is much lower. So empirically, it's become a problem. I think that the, there is a camp, obviously, and it's a consensus camp. There's just a matter of time. We have to be patient. This is a, the natural consequence of a major financial crisis and economic downturn. It's all going to come good. And I think that's a sort of consensus within the Fed. My concern is that there are reasons for why uh, we've noticed this. Uh, this collapse in the Phillips curve, uh, and uh, they are not to do 
necessarily with cyclical forces. They're to do with these structural forces, such as demographics, for example. The older people, the 55-year-old-plus generation, they've seen the biggest shift in the Phillips curve relative to some of the younger generations. And, and because the, that, uh, that, that, that group of that, that age cohort is becoming more and more dominant in the labor force, uh, I don't think this thing is necessarily going to change yeah. over the next five years or so. We're waxing single equation this morning with the Phillips Curve with Dominic Constant. We say good morning, David Gurr and Tom Keane, Bloomberg Surveillance. Dominic, one of the ideas here is a Phillips Curve, a single equation solution. What a conceit. Come on, this thing comes out of LSE 40 years ago. I get it. And there's been adjustments by guys a lot smarter than me. But please tell our audience why we're supposed to hinge where we're going on, frankly, a rather simplistic algebraic function. Well, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. <clears throat> and, and it's sort of uh, incredibly sort of backward-looking in some sense as well. Um, so, no, I, I, I think uh, it's, uh, there's a, it's, a, it's, good, it's a good thing that it sort of you know, isn't working because it makes you think about, you know, what... Exactly. You know, you know, what, and, I mean, Bob Schiller's world folds <clears throat> over onto this and that there's not only a behavioral construct that you overlay on a simple algebraic function, but at the heart, all of these equations are based on some forms of Gaussian bell curve distributions. It's, I think we learned in the last 10 years, it's not a bell curve world, right? Uh, yes, and I think, I, I guess, the, if you're going to defend anything, I suppose what you do is you say that at least when things uh, break down, you sort of understand why you've been so wrong for so long sort of thing. And I think that's going to be the case for the, some of the central banks. They'll realize, you know, they'll, they'll understand what they got wrong, basically. Is it just because they don't have a new theory to go to? I mean, that's a, that's a very valid thing to... Ponder here. In the I, mean, I mean, really good papers this summer, frankly. I mean, they're driving in the dark to some extent. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's partly because we're in this world of, let's say, creative destruction and, and huge structural upheavals, whether it's globalization, technology, or the aging populations. All of these things make it very hard, I think, for uh, anyone to have a lot of confidence uh, in the, uh, in the yeah. future. I mean, David Gurr, do, do people understand that four months of the year, it's like we live in Greenland? You drive to work in the dark and you come, you go home from Bloomberg in the dark. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Treasure these there's few no several sun. months. There's no, there's no sun on surveillance. Uh, Dov, let me ask you about, you, you, you explained that there, there could be a link here between uh, low inflation, high growth via uh, what we're seeing in, in equity. Just spell that out for us, uh, if you would. Well, uh, I, I recall very well the late 90s, early 2000s, where we saw strong growth and uh, low inflation. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it was associated with a, a real investment boom. It was to do with the dot-com bubble at the time, etc. Uh, and uh, equity markets were doing very well. And there's this concept of Tobin's Q, which is basically the, the market value of equities versus replacement costs, uh-huh. which, is invest, which is the investment side of it. So companies basically uh, started issuing a lot of equity instead of buying back their stock. And, and uh, I know, we know that the capital labor ratio, uh, the amount of investment relative to employment in the US in particular, is very, very low now. So there there is this sort of case for saying we want to see much higher uh, real investment relative to the employment, and that would raise productivity. And so clearly one way to do that would be to uh, have companies stop buying back their stock uh, and uh, invest. Uh, and uh, uh, the actual market going up another sort of uh, 30% would be you know, equivalent to a kind of what happened uh, in the late 90s. Uh, and so uh, rather than being worried about equity bubbles and uh, the idea that you know interest rates are going to go up and, and 
and uh, that, that the actual market may have to come down sort of as part of that. It's just maybe the, the, the outlook is to say interest rates are going to stay very low because inflation is going to stay very low and interest rates will only rise when real growth is a lot stronger, but in a way that has to come okay. after equities go up. What is, what is the, we're going to come back with you, but very quickly here, what is the catalyst to jumpstart real growth? Besides a hope and a prayer from smart guys like you. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we've had a lot of buybacks in the equity market. Sort of, uh, we know there have been a lot of buybacks. There's a sense whereby that's maybe shifting towards more M&A activity. And in the grand cycle of things, it's possible that we could shift to greater net equity issuance at some point. Uh, once valuations in the equity markets uh, encourage companies to sort of think about replicating themselves rather than buying someone else. So the catalyst would have to come from... Uh, uh, you know, from the financial markets to some extent. And without doubt, uh, a strong equity market, I, I, I think, would encourage real investments and that would raise productivity. You'd be adding capital to labor. Right now, the capital labor ratio is growing. It's pathetic. It's growing around sort of 3 or 4% if you're lucky. Uh, it used to be, it's been as high as 8% and on average, mm-hmm. it should be 6%. I find it interesting that the president of the United States is retweeting a Bloomberg markets chart. I saw that. I haven't brought it up, great. but I did see that, yeah. Mr. Trump, if you're listening out on the golf course in the early morning sun, all I can say is our team, led by one M. Bloomberg, would love to visit you and move a terminal out to your many Bedminsters today. He, does he understand he could have a Bloomberg login there you go. and have a terminal in Bedminster you could IB with him. in Florida? He could have one at the White House when he's there. Can he have one on the golf course? I think he can. He can use the professional app. Very good. As we continue continue to hawk this product. That was a word by our sponsors, folks. But we thank the president, seriously, for uh, (laughs) retweeting Shochandra's great work at Bloomberg Markets. Dominique Constant with us. He knows about the Bloomberg uh, terminal. Dominique, one of the great minds of investment was Phil Carre, enjoying a life well into his 100th year, a great student of solar eclipses as we have the eclipse coming up in August. And Phil Carre always talked about the bright lights of inflation. Mm-hmm. Under the constant theme, there aren't any bright lights. How in the dark, how in the shade are we going to be with a lack of inflation? Well, um, <clears throat> I think it ultimately comes down to how low nominal growth is uh, because of the lack of inflation. So uh, this is why if we can if we can make something out of low inflation in terms of higher real growth, it won't be so dark. Uh, so that's the kind of key issue. I think initially, though, uh, if inflation is going to stay somewhat disappointing uh, and uh, we're not going to get a big rebound, we'll see the data obviously uh, on the PPI front today and uh, and CPI tomorrow. But but uh, if initially we don't get any sort of uh, you know, meaningful bounce back in inflation, then obviously it's going to look a little bit dark because uh, people are going to question what the Fed is actually doing. Uh, you know, obviously, they're, they're on, on course to do their balance sheet reduction and they're talking about hiking possibly in December. Uh, and all that's going to look a bit uh, sort of, you know, what's the point of it? OK, so within your research note, I don't think there's a fiscal response. Does well, fiscal, does infrastructure, does the other falter all? Does that I mean, my, help? Yeah, out? I mean, help, my view on fiscal is to distinguish the sort of the two kinds of fiscal. One is obviously uh, fiscal stimulus. And uh, stimulus is fine uh, if in some sense you can sort of unleash some sort of multiplier effect. But there's always a danger that the Fed kind of responds to that by saying, OK, uh, because of our models on uh, unemployment and uh, we think the Phillips curve is going to work, we're going to just, you know, snuff out the extra stimulus uh, by a raising rate 
rates a bit faster. So it could be a sort of a zero-sum game uh, if the Fed kind of offsets the fiscal. Fiscal reform, though, uh, is uh, that actually kind of raises potential growth uh, is much more interesting because and obviously you can sort of shift out your supply curve effectively. Uh, and um, what's the scope for that? Well, it doesn't look so good now because they've obviously dropped some of these uh, more outrageous type policies that uh, what some people thought were outrageous, such as the border tax. Uh, and uh, But those could have had a more meaningful impact, yeah, and, I think, and, on potential growth. And David, part of the debate here is you've got to move the needle. Mm. I mean, in a $17, $19 trillion economy, it takes a lot of fiscal pop, really, to move the needle. Dom, you declare volatility dead, and I'm sure there are many investors grieving that. How do we move past that? What, what do you what do you see as the, the way forward when it comes to this this low volatility environment? Well, he doesn't he doesn't do the hedge fund events. <laughs> <in Deutsche laughs> <Bank. laughs> Yeah, right. The, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, you know, volatility is dead, I think, for a couple of reasons or has been dead for a couple of reasons. One is obviously interest rates are very low. And when interest rates are very low, you know, in general, volatility is going to be pretty low in the rate market. And that sort of, um, uh, you know, maybe infects some of these other asset market classes as well, because it's not just rate vol that's obviously very low. Mm. Um, the, the other reason, though, obviously, is uh, that central banks are such big players in the financial markets through quantitative easing. So even though the Fed no longer uh, is doing QE and it's going to start winding down the balance sheet very slowly, uh, the ECB and BOJ are still massive uh, buyers of, uh, of securities. And that's the other sort of reason that affects it. So I think the way in which you eventually get out of it will uh, be some combination of uh, raising nominal growth. And as we said, it's not likely to come from inflation very much. It'd have to be a real growth story eventually. Uh, but also getting the central banks sort of out of the financial markets. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the ECB is probably going to taper again uh, later or announce the tapering later this year, uh, perhaps as early as September. Uh, and obviously the Fed's doing their thing on balance sheet and the BOJ is going to be f- a long way behind. But they, you know, eventually they may do something. So if all goes well, you know, slowly, 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 maybe we can bring back uh, higher higher rates yeah. on the real side and some volatility. You have been more than generous. Yes, as absolutely. I say, folks, the problem with Dominic is you have to read his lengthy research piece <laughs> word by word. It's no problem. Like, <laughs> chart, we protect the copyright uh, of our already had a couple emails. No, we're not going to mail out <laughs> Deutsche Bank's work. Please contact Deutsche Bank for Dr. Constance's brilliance. Uh, David, I guess we should wax political here. That seems to be the season with a qualified candidate, the former governor of Oklahoma. Oklahoma's Outside of the three zip codes we uh, uh, work with in, David, it's out in the, the rest of America. But we say good morning to our you, listeners yes. there on uh, Sirius XM Channel yes. 119. And Frank Keating joins us now, as you say, former governor, 25th governor uh, of Oklahoma with a long history with the FBI uh, as well. He, governor Keating, great to have you on the program once again. Get us up to speed on what you're watching here as all of these investigations unfold. Given your background, what's most interesting to you? Where, where, where do you see the most interest when it comes into the Russia investigations? Well, I, of course, as a citizen, um, was not surprised, but certainly as a result of my background, <laughs> that the Russians and others uh, have been interested in American politics and mm. American elections. Have they been um, doing everything in their power to disrupt them or to change the outcome? Well, I suppose they would try if they could. Uh, but the United States does the same thing. They are, we are very interested in what's going on in countries that are our ab- adversaries. And I'm sure and I know that in the past there have been uh, uh, efforts made to change outcomes of elections. But that said, um, I'm 
not friendly to the concept of an independent counsel, a special prosecutor, a special counsel, because if you have one victim and you have an armory of investigators and you have an army of, of prosecutors, you're going to get your victim, whether it's sitting on the sidewalk or whether, in, for example, in the Trump case, um, it's a deduction that wasn't warranted or you, in a limited um, partnership, valued a property greater than its real value was. And all that's, of course, arguable. But that's what worries me. The independent counsel himself, Bob Mueller, I think is a very fine person, a very mm. sharp person. But again, it's the concept itself and where it goes is anybody's guess. But I would imagine they'll find something. And I think that's terribly disruptive to a free society. How does somebody like Mr. Mueller uh, the agents who are, who, are, who are working these these investigations, how do they tune out the, the political noise surrounding all of this? We've seen uh, some criticism, direct and indirect, of Mr. Mueller, for instance, uh, speculation that he might be, be removed, etc. When, when you're working an investigation like this amid all of these political pressures, how do you tune that out? Well, I was U.S. attorney in, in my state, and I chaired the U.S. attorneys. I was number three at the Justice Department and supervised virtually all of the federal law enforcement establishment at Treasury and and justice, we had pretty strong rules that we didn't get engaged in politics unless there was a real issue. I mean, a very, very dangerous um, uh, challenge to legal challenge to the process itself. I remember one time as a young agent in San Francisco, I interviewed Mayor Alito, mm. who then was under investigation. I don't recall at this juncture what for. And he said, well, you're just here because of Richard Nixon told you to come here. Well, the average FBI agent, you know, he has a, a case is open. He's assigned a lead. He interviews people. He is totally apolitical and he is, you know, totally professional. At least that has been my experience. Yeah. So where this goes is anybody's guess. But as I said, I just hope that it's not another Ken star. We move from the white water to the stained dress mm -hmm. and the president lying about having well, an affair. So we're going to turn things in our head. That's what we do in August here. David Gurr and Tom Keene with us. The uh, uh, governor of Oklahoma, the former governor, Frank Keating, of course, with his public service with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and talking here about Mr. Mueller earlier in that. Frank, let's talk Anna Langthorne. She's head of the Oklahoma Democrats. John Sparks, a Senate leader. Scott Inman, the House leader. The Democrats owned the state from 1907 to 1994 when the commies known as the Republicans took over the state. What do the Democrats need to do to get that traditional Democratic voice back? Many would suggest that the Secretary of State lost the election rather than Mr. Trump won it. Do you have any worry that the Democrats actually get their message organized and they take back Michigan or they could even take back Oklahoma? Well, you know, Tom, it is uh, anybody's guess right now, because I was the first Republican governor of my state since the 60s. The Democrats yeah. controlled the House and Senate forever. And my whole theme was, why are we 45th in per capita income? There's no reason for this. When I left office, oil was never above $18 a barrel. We were 37th in per capita income. We put right to work in the Constitution, finished the highway system, the turnpikes, made the kids take harder courses in school. You know, charter choice, all that stuff got rid of welfare through a Democrat House and Senate. It can be done. But what's important is to have Republicans realize to be the party of Lincoln, they have to win Lincoln agendas. And the Democrats, to be a party of Jefferson, they have to win Jefferson agendas. 
but both of them are American agendas. Come together, let's work it out, and do what's necessary to make America great again, as the president said. So it's not that difficult. It doesn't really take a a, a PhD in economics to figure out what America, what ails America. And this tax thing, I think, is going to be watched very carefully. With all those trillions abroad, are we going to fix the system and bring that money home? We'll see, but it does take leadership, and it has it takes humility to get stuff done. You can't like it. You just can't take the view, Tom, that it's my way or the highway. Where's that humility? Where's that leadership going to come from? As you mentioned, we're all watching what's what's happening or going to happen in, in Washington when it comes to, to tax reform. Uh, where do you do you see a real leadership and humility deficit in Washington, and what's going to fill that? Well. <laughs> Obviously, Donald Trump, there's not a whole lot of humility there, but he wants to win. He wants to be a successful president. I know the vice president feels the same way. Think of the good men and women who are willing to serve in the administration. They don't want to leave a wreckage of a legacy. I mean, they want to win. They want to succeed as well. And I really think the Democrats, my grandfather was a bank owner in Illinois, but he was a Democrat member of Congress. Your father I mean, was a Democrat? My granddad was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he, I mean, he really thought deeply about news. these issues, and he wanted, um, he was a, a member during the Depression. He wanted to make sure that small towns and community banks were listened to and looked at during the course of the recovery from the from the depression and you know but it does take uh, you know the president's leadership and he needs to sit at the head of the table bring people from both sides in and say look here's how i see we ought to go what do you think can we count on you to help us and you look at the democrats heidi heitkamp from north dakota um joe manchin from west virginia those are conservative people there are democrats that are up for re-election from states that the president won, those individuals are talkable. I mean, they're not completely fanatical for the Democratic Party. They are fanatical to be reelected. And and I think there's an opportunity here to address their concerns and address the concerns of the country and solve these problems. I just, I'm puzzled as a former executive of a state uh, why this is so difficult. I just don't understand it. How far does does that distance between Oklahoma City and, and Washington field today? Thirteen hundred miles, but does it does it feel Good farther question. than it has? Well, what's interesting when our members come home and they're all good people. Uh, when they come home, they're convinced that things are going to get fixed and things are going to move forward. But they, as I, I'm sure David, you and Tom as well, aren't sure what kind of leadership the president is going to provide because he's a novice. This is not his area of expertise. But he wants to win. So what's important is for the vice president to take a much more private role with the president. And hopefully this lunch today will help in that direction where the VP says, you know, we're all going to look like fools if we don't get stuff done. And here's what I suggest we do. And hopefully they'll do that. You know, a great point to David's wonderful question. I got the map out here, folks. And, you know, I've driven some of this. I've had the privilege. I had parents, Frank, who just put you in the car and said, let's go. And there's no air conditioning. <laughs> you know, you come out of Oklahoma. And I mean, I know you take the Keating family golf stream, but the answer is you either go south, you go south and drive through Nashville, or you go north and drive through Mike, uh, Michael Pence, Indianapolis. I mean, there's there's two arcs to drive from Oklahoma to Washington. 
What does that group of Republicans say about this president? Whether you take the Southern Arc through Nashville or the interstate through Indianapolis, you got a lot of people there baffled by this president. Is that right or am I wrong? Does he have that much support out there? Well, I think everybody uh, wants him to succeed. Uh, The people I talk to of all walks of life want the president to succeed, but they're not sure what that means to him. I mean, is that something he feels he has to do to win in public policy, not just in PR? And I think those are important distinctions. But most people know he's the only president we've got. We can't vote for him or against him for a few more years. So why doesn't he win? I mean, let's win some of these races, uh, meaning political uh, legislative races. Let's win these issues. Yeah. And then move on. And then all, everybody lives happily ever after. I, people okay. want him to, to do well. They're just not sure if he will. But, Frank, I mean, I, again, I know you take the Keating Golf Stream, but if you were to take <laughs> I-70 through Mike, for the vice president's Indiana, and if you passed Brazil, Indiana, I'm going to make the assumption uh, Brazil is west-southwest of Indianapolis. I'm going to make the assumption the good people of Brazil, Indiana, probably went Republican. Those people put you in office. Are they still going to vote for this president? Is frankly, some of the polls say, yes, they will. I think most people are only loyal to their wives and half of their marriages in the divorce. So, no, I mean, there are probably, and this is our challenge as the, as the party of Lincoln, an African-American community that is solidly Democrat. And that disappoints me. Uh, but obviously, we've got to work to open up the opportunity for those folks and to convince them to vote Republican. But I think most people will vote against Trump just as fast as they voted for him if he thinks okay, he's but, not doing but the come job on. that needs to be done. Did you have an attorney general that's going to get you back to the party of Lincoln? Well, you know, I, the, the, the reality is I, Jeff and I have been friends. Jeff Sessions and I have been friends back when we were U.S. attorneys together. And, you know, I think that like any of us, for example, when I was nominated to be on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the Democrat members of the Judiciary Committee in the Congress said, well, I'm very concerned about, you know, your issue as to uh, how you handle as general counsel of HUD uh, um, issues that allegedly had racial overtones. And I said, I said, Senator, are you aware I was state counsel of the NAACP in Oklahoma? And then immediately he changed the subject. Because if yeah. you're a white male, white male Republican, you're supposed yeah. to be a racist, which is a I, complete libel. And I think yeah. I think that Jeff is a good man doing the best he can. This has been great. Frank Keating, always inspiring. Thank you so much. Always love the conversation with Governor Keating. I've got to do a I've got to do an apology to David Gura because I'm an no. the conversation <laughs> there. Frank Keating got me going. I'm, we'll have him back, six, I hope. Can I we hope book the back. 16th president? Can you try to get Lincoln <laughs> in here? Frank Keating uh, joining us from Oklahoma City on our phone lines. Republican retired General Mark Kimmett. He's former Assistant Secretary of State, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, someone who can give us some invaluable perspective here on the uh, war of words, the rhetoric that we've uh, heard here uh, regarding North Korea over these last a few days. He joins us from our 991 studios in Washington, D.C. Uh, this morning. Uh, great to have you with us here. Let me, let me start just by asking you to react to what we've heard uh, thus far on Twitter. 
uh, in comments uh, at Bedminster and uh, through statements uh, uh, from the Korean Peninsula as well. What, what do you make of what we're hearing right now, General? Well, two things. First of all, I think the comments that came out of the president have been sort of amplified down here in Washington, D.C., which is more of a function of the political dissent mm-hmm. between the administration. More important is what Secretary Mattis and Secretary Tillotson have been saying. Secretary Tillerson continues to believe that diplomacy is the right way to handle this. But Secretary Mattis put out in an extraordinarily tough statement yesterday, uh, in effect threatening the North Korean regime that says, if you come after us, we will destroy your country and we will destroy your people. That's about the toughest rhetoric I've heard on this situation um, since I can remember. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if, if the, the rhetoric and risk are matched up here. Uh, we listened to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, as he flew to Guam uh, yesterday. He said Americans should be sleeping soundly, et cetera, uh, et cetera. Uh, is the risk as great as the rhetoric would lead, lead, lead one to think? I, I don't think so. Uh, the only risk that I'm concerned about is the risk of miscalculation, that somehow in this war of words, somebody makes a mistake, somebody says something, uh, that is interpreted by the other side the wrong way and what has gone then from a rhetorical battle to something a little more significant. How much has, has, has this conversation changed? Of course, we've seen now two tests of intercontinental ballistic missiles. There's the reporting uh, by the Washington Post and others that uh, they've managed to miniaturize a, a nuclear weapon. How much has, has the, the circumstances changed here uh, over these last few years? Well, That really is two questions. Number one, how has the rhetoric changed? Certainly it's become a lot tougher uh, because I think this administration recognizes that the speak softly and carry a big stick philosophy, which has guided our diplomacy with North Korea over the past 15 years, has done nothing to limit or slow down the nuclear development of North Korea. So I believe the rhetoric is a little bit tougher. In fact, it's considerably tougher. And I think at this point, the the answer is not only – carry a big stick, mm. but also talk in language that this guy understands. General Kimmy, you have, as all generals and admirals do, a most interesting path uh, through your military. There are all sorts of wonderful ribbons, the Army Commendation Medal, the Global War on Terrorism Expeditionary Medal, your service in Germany, your master parachutist wings. Do you get a ribbon for having a chartered financial analyst designation? <laughs> Tom wants one. Did, <laughs> did you get, do I get to wear a ribbon because I have that? I mean, what was it like getting a CFA under the guise of military education? Well, it was very interesting. I'd gone in that long period of time between captain and major. After you've commanded, you have a significant amount yeah. of time. I went back and taught at West Point. Mm-hmm. Frankly, my alma mater, Harvard Business School, I felt, did not have a strong finance program. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I, I, I actually Be wanted careful, to learn. General. No, no, I actually wanted to learn more about the tough part of finance, which was going through a revolution in the 80s, as you remember. The, yeah. the rocket scientists were coming out. The derivatives were now yeah. being calculated. You didn't get that at Harvard. We didn't. That, that's tough to teach you know there's the a case school method. up the Charles River that maybe could have uh. helped you along the way with that? No, that's exactly right. MIT and Sloan really got hard on that, as did uh, Wharton yeah, and Chicago. Kepler at Carnegie Mellon and the others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and being an engineer by background from West yeah. Point, I really wanted to learn yeah. the math. And God yeah. bless my alma mater, but that was general management. And I was teaching finance. And I just felt it was important to yeah. know much more than my students. Well, Mark Tracy, Patrick Kimmett, comma, CFA, 
let me, I'm going to get to the gossip. I can't think of anyone more qualified to pick up the pieces of the White House press room than you. We have a president who has an affinity for people with eagles and stars on their shoulders. We've had a Donnybrook, whatever anybody's politics, within the press room. Have you been contacted by General Kelly to take over the things you are experienced at, which is communicating with the press and the public? Well, I haven't. and I've got the, the greatest respect for John Kelly. I've served side by side with him before, but I, I think you said it. There are a lot of generals there. I spent a year as the spokesman in Iraq, and uh, that, that's enough for me. See that cold silence, David? Why don't you pick it up after I just destroyed the conversation? <laughs> I want to get your sense of, of, of uh, how cohesive you think the, the national security team is within the, the White House. Now, there was all of the palace intrigue yes. at the beginning about uh, some people wanting to go one direction, others wanting to go another. Tom mentioned some of the, the principles uh, involved in all this. Do, do you feel like it's, it's cohering, it's working as a, as a team today? Well, I think we're going to go through another uh, round of departures. John Kelly, again, is enormously talented. He knows how to be a chief of staff. He doesn't brook uh, gossip. He doesn't brook uh, leaks. Some people, I think, are going to try to test him, and, and they'll probably find themselves on the other side of the street. Um, on the issue of national security, I think is more important. We probably have the most talented, experienced group of national security professionals handling this crisis right now. And I don't mean you know, ivory tower intellectuals. I don't mean cruise missile liberals. I mean people that understand not only war, but understand the cost of war. In, in that, that significant group of four, Mattis, Dunford at the Pentagon, uh, Kelly McMaster at the White House, those are the people I want helping to make the decisions because they're sober-minded enough to know what the real costs are of going to war in Korea. For goodness sakes, and God bless him, John Kelly lost his son in Iraq. Mm. These yeah. are experienced professionals that don't look at war as a theoretical construct. They have fought it. They know the cost of it. They know how to fight it if necessary. So I think the president has the opportunity to get the best advice in the world on this issue with regards to Korea. I know that you worked on um, plans and strategy at CENTCOM, and, and uh, there's a lot of conversation here about how we resolve this crisis uh, on the Korean Peninsula diplomatically, get folks back to the negotiating table. But help us understand sort of militarily how this might be playing out behind the scenes. Uh, we, well, we've seen the rhetoric on Twitter about uh, how equipped, how capable the, the, the U.S. forces are. In terms of military strategy, where do things stand, do you think? Well, first of all, I think everybody needs to start breathing through their mouths yeah. and their noses and just relax a bit and understand the center of gravity of this fight is Kim Jong-il's desire, Kim Jong-un's desire to maintain and perpetuate his regime. Uh, he may be a little bit crazy, but he's not suicidal. So in my mind, we have got to recognize that what all of this acting out on his part and all this nuclear development is is for one reason alone and that's to keep the chinese out and to keep the koreans the south koreans and, and the americans out uh, so if you start from that premise you realize that you've got to meet him not only capability for capability but also word for word and hopefully that will put him back into a position where he is no longer a threat uh to the region uh, do, you, do you think that that's likely? I mean, the, the principles have all changed here. We've got a new president. There's a new uh, leader in South Korea, of course, a new leader in North Korea uh, as well. Are you optimistic that we can get back to that negotiating table? Well, well, I am, but I think we've got to understand we're taking a different negotiating tone. I mean, the, the fact remains 
this speak softly and carry a big stick has done nothing for the last 15, 20 years to halt his development. He's violated every agreement that he's ever um, signed up to. And frankly, uh, I think we just have to take a different tack. I think it's important to recognize that this rhetoric of the president was not simply meant for North Korea. It was also meant for China as well. And the message is clear and simple. You mm -hmm. want me to handle this or do you guys want to handle it? General, thank you so much. Mark Kimmett, General Kimmett, uh, with us today. We greatly appreciate uh, from our studios, our 99.1 FM studios in Washington. This is always a joy. He is the most interesting pedigreed to wander his way to the White House and within that out to boost school in Chicago through Milton Academy, uh, through, um, I think he did okay at Yale. Small school in New Haven. And then on, yeah. and on the MIT as well. Austin Goolsby joins us now on our phone line. Austin, wonderful to talk to you. Our, our theme here today has been our labor economy. You've lived this, and particularly with your counsel to President o o Obama, there is an individual streak across all of America. We're the individuals. We do it alone. Laissez-faire, free market. We don't need institutions to help us. Where do we stand on that in 2017? Well, Tom, thanks for having me back. Uh, I, I thought you meant uh, I wandered through the labor economy because I, w I got a job and uh, and then I, I had to come back and, and refine that job <laughs> when I got out of Washington. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that we still have a major cultural push toward that individualism and the rise of the gig economy and working part-time filling in scratches that itch a little bit. I think that's why there's, there's more taste for the, for the rise of the gig economy among workers, maybe than than among the press, let's call it. But as you know, the economy's moved a little more to teams, and teams teams and joint work are are a bigger they're a bigger factor in the economy now than uh, if, certainly than they have been in recent times, maybe if ever. And we've had a little bit of having to adjust to that. Had some time to adjust to that. I wonder if we've gotten any better at measuring it. We talked to Alan Kruger from time to time uh, on the show, your former uh, colleague, about his work on the gig economy. How, how much better are we at measuring the, the effects on the labor economy uh, of part-time work of these new gigs? Yes, and we're not great about measuring it, partly because the people themselves working those gigs don't think of them as regular jobs. They're elective? And so the cons the the... The current population survey, which is the big survey where we get the unemployment rate every month, they've gone back and looked at the administrative records, and Alan Kruger and others own them specifically, their own research shows, I think a quarter or a third of the people who are working those gig jobs, and when they're asked, do you have a do you have a job, they don't count those as their job. So, so our measurement is not perfect. Maybe shift gears a little bit here. We're, we've got uh, both both houses of Congress on recess right now. The president up in Bedminster 
uh, enjoying so much as he can a 17-day working uh, vacation. They're going to come back and have to deal with the debt ceiling. And you've been uh, in the White House uh, as all of this unfolded, the, uh, the the now regular debate over how to raise it, when to raise it, if to do it cleanly or, or otherwise. What's your counsel to uh, this new administration about how to go about this, how to speak with a unified voice on that issue in particular? <laughs> Look, the thing is, we have never been in the circumstance that we're about to be in. And by that, I mean there, there have a few times been fights over the debt ceiling, but never when the party of the president and both houses of Congress are the same. Because normally they're on the same page and they can pass a budget. They what? They look, they see that the debt ceiling, fighting over the debt ceiling doesn't really make any logical sense. Congress itself has already passed the laws that they're then trying to say, no, we won't pay the bills for these laws. So normally, if they're all the same party, they just quietly pass an increase in the debt ceiling and they attach it to a bill that's building a bridge of something, then this let no one ever speak of it again, and they move on. And so I thought that's what they would do. And I guess my advice to the president would be, would have been just go talk to Mitch McConnell behind the scenes and be quiet yeah. about it and, and just get it done. Uh, I guess I don't understand the logic that while you're on vacation, you would come in and just do a little bit of Twitter and attack Mitch McConnell and say <laughs> that he, he's a hypocrite and can't get his job done. Um, because yeah. now when they come back, you need him. You need him to quietly go yeah. change the change the rules and raise the debt ceiling. Austin Goldsby, a minute here, and then we want to come back and dive into other themes. How critical is it for Kevin Hassett to dark at the door at the White House? I mean, this process is taking I think way it's too long. Important. Right? Look, you and I are friends with Kevin, and I disagree with Kevin on a, on a yeah. bunch of politics. But he's a reasonable guy. He's sensible. Uh, you know, I think the bigger issue will be uh, that they should pass him. They should put him in the White House. Boy, the president should start listening to him. Um, I don't know that, that he's going to, but, you know, we, we could all keep our fingers now, crossed. In Austin, now we go in August where parents dare to tread. We consider your pedigree, Milton Academy, dare to be true a member of the debate team, the Massachusetts Forensic League, the National Forensic League, the Catholic Forensic League, and the Debate Association of New England Independent Schools. This is the time of year, Austin, where parents lean across the table and say to their children, you know, you really ought to join the debate team. Help us with this, Austin. What was the first day like at Milton Academy when young Goolsby walked in and was going to debate? How scared were you? Well, I, I did, uh, I mostly in high school did speech events uh, rather than debate events. It was still nerve-wracking because you got you to gotta memorize a speech. They gave you 30 minutes, they gave you a topic, and you had to write and memorize a thing. This is extemporaneous uh, speaking. But, yeah, extemporaneous I remember that well. But, you know, the thing is, uh, boy, I'm glad I signed up. I can't even remember how I ended up in that, but but it ended up being good for life. You know, just 
being able to express yourself right. in a way that's clear, make an argument, the, the society never gets tired of that. Well, and, and then you took a you step know, for to... all the artificial intelligence and the robots, they right. still haven't figured out and, how to replace it. then, that. Austin, you took a step down academically. You went from Milton Academy to a small school in New Haven, <laughs> uh, Connecticut. <laughs> so you go to Yale and you're doing the debate thing and that. How does being on the debate team line up your brain? What What is the process when you're a kid where that debate or speech experience Helps you line up things in your head. Well, you're getting uh, you're getting deep on me, Tom. Well, you're the champ. You won. No, look, you come on, be, you won the you whole thing. Be organized. You got to be organized. You got to be logical. Uh, it turns out that one of my main rivals uh, in debate when I was in college that that we would beat regularly, I might add, was none other than Ted Cruz, oh, the boy. senator from Texas. And uh so I got a lot of funny stories about him. So you know, part of part of any event like debate, I think, is getting your mind ready logical and organized, but part of it is also the people mm-hmm. you work with. You know, you work, you spend a lot of time working on that. In high yeah. school, I probably spent more time working on that speech and debate yeah. stuff than all my classes. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if if I probably should have been doing my homework more. But Yeah, I know you slacked but, off. Uh, Would you stop it, Austin? You're killing me. <laughs> he went on, folks, to the MIT where Stan Fisher said, yeah, we'll give you a PhD. Okay, why not? David, here endeth the lecture on critical thinking skills in August. Why not you bring us back to something more uh, useful? Austin, you, you, you came into government after uh, a career in academia. We've got uh, folks in this administration now, a lot of whom have not served in government before. What did you learn about that relationship between the executive branch uh, and the legislative branch, about working with uh, Congress? Uh, how, how hard was it to learn your way down Pennsylvania Avenue up to the Capitol? Well, you know, they usually wouldn't release me <laughs> without an escort, you know, over in Congress, but that that's okay. Um, I think presidents can take different approaches and the uh, to, toward Congress. Some, like President Obama, are very policy-oriented, and they come up with a lot of specific ideas that they have allies in Congress, and they say, look, here's the president's plan for A, B, and C. Others have followed a model that I thought Donald Trump was following, which is the White House itself doesn't really have any details or doesn't have that that many, and so they would be more reflecting what Congress Congress would put up the details and they would they would sign bills or or you know focus more on management. Um, I was wrong about that. They haven't managed the White House very well, and they haven't put forward policy. And I guess my summary is, I don't think that the White House realizes that most everything that you're going to be able to do happens in a pretty short window right at the beginning. And then as you get to the first midterm, I think they're going to find the same thing Barack Obama found and George Bush before that and and others before that. You come to the election and the president will say, hey, uh, why don't I come down and help you campaign? 
And then the people in Congress start saying, oh, no, you know what? We know you're really busy. Why don't you not come down here? Why don't you, in fact, don't tell anyone you know me and don't say my name? Because they all read the polls the same as we do. And after the first year, I think it's hard to do anything. Mm. And I don't think the White House... I don't think the White House has factored that in fully. Austin Goldsby, no debate. We enjoy having you with us. He is from the (laughs) Booth School uh, in Chicago. Austin Goldsby, thank you uh, so much this morning. He's the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.